Thank you very much for that song. Thank you for preparing it, Pastor John, for leading the choir. Praise the one who lives again, whose glory owns our gaze. Look, you saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. You can't see him with visible eye. But can you see him with the eye of faith? It's really what this day is about as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, is seeing him, the eyes of faith, but faith is not ungrounded. Faith is grounded in truth. And when it comes to the resurrection, the truth is eyewitness testimony. I had an opportunity to be an eyewitness in 2020. My family and I were driving back from an evening fellowship with the Marinos. Pastor John and Kristen had invited us over for pizza, and I think we're coming back in the middle of a week. It was about 10, 10.30, and we saw a car that was didn't look like the person knew exactly where they were trying to go. And then quickly, as we were getting off on an exit, pulled in front of us and then looked like they were going to go one way off another exit, but then pulled in front of us again and went on the same exit we were going on. And so that caught our attention. And out of concern, uh, in part, we immediately called, after a little bit more evidence, there was something wrong. We called 911 to report what appeared to be a intoxicated driver. And the story is longer than we have time for, but I will say I became, uh, along with my family, an eyewitness to that event. Over the next hour or so, I was witness to some additional things that happened, even after the person pulled off to the side of the road and then got going again right before the police came. And I had to make a statement to Akron police, and then eventually, as we got going, I thought to myself, if that person still is going and the police haven't stopped uh, her, I came to realize later it was a her, uh, she could hurt herself or somebody else. And so we ended up going up one extra exit than we normally did. And thankfully, another officer, State Highway Patrol, had stopped her and she was actually injured and uh, was able to take care of some things. I ended up giving a witness statement and really didn't hear much about it other than I get a yellow slip on the door of my house, which was a subpoena to a courthouse to give testimony to what I had written down. And having really not ever been, I'd been called for jury duty, but not been in that kind of a circumstance. I went first day and to make a long story short, I just ended up getting dismissed, but the court continued the case. And then there was another day that I went and was also dismissed. And the third day that I came, uh, the attorney who was prosecuting the case said, I'm thankful somebody came because a lot of people just don't give testimony and in this case, they really did have a case against this person and needed to uh, prosecute. And 
I just realized the significance of what an eyewitness provides, not only my statement, but my attesting to, yes, this is true. A person who's an eyewitness has actually seen an event, a circumstance, and thus has personal knowledge and can be expected to attest to the occurrence of that event. When we come to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are coming to eyewitness evidence. Luke makes a point of that in his opening as he begins to tell Theophilus of the certainty of the things that Christians believed. Matthew was a disciple. He was eyewitness because he was a part of the apostolic company. Mark was closely connected with Peter. It's believed that Mark had Peter as the eyewitness to many of the things recorded in Mark, as well as other disciples. And then John, of course, is a disciple. But Luke is not. Luke is a physician who came along later, but Luke was very concerned to base his gospel upon eyewitness evidence. And so you can expect that he actually interviewed people, talked to the apostles that he could. It seems obvious, according to the first couple of chapters of the gospel of Luke, that he had some interaction with Mary herself, who told him what had transpired in the days before anybody knew anything, when she was there, the angel came and announced to her what was going to take place and the things that she pondered in her heart. There's all sorts of things in the first couple of chapters that we wouldn't know except for that firsthand participation and eyewitness But as we look through the Gospel of Luke, you come to the end of the Gospel of Luke, and of course, he begins with the birth, he records the genealogy of the family, even though Jesus was born of a virgin, the the legal royal connection of Jesus to David, even going back to Adam. But then as he proceeds, he tells the story of Jesus' life and ministry, his teachings, and then when it comes to the time of the crucifixion, he gives an account of what took place on those days as he, of course, came in in triumphal entry, but then within a short amount of time was arrested, taken, tried by the Jews, tried by the Romans, and eventually crucified. And at the end of Luke chapter 23, which I'd invite you to turn to Luke 23, the end of the chapter, we see Jesus, in his dying moment in verse 46, Luke chapter 23, verse 46, it says, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Notice this, verse 47, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent or righteous. The centurion saw it. Look at verse 48. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. 
again, the crowds seeing it. But then in addition, verse 49, and all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. So he's describing a story of what people saw and some of the people who saw that day, he's later going to name in this very gospel. He's going to give attention, especially to the women mentioned in verse 49. We don't know the others that uh, he describes, for instance, in the crowds, but certainly there were disciples of Christ who were there at the scene. There are women who accompanied Jesus from Galilee who are giving testimony to what had taken place. What had taken place? Jesus had died. That's what this gospel records, that he had truly died. The other gospels give a record also of his death. That centurion who is mentioned here is mentioned in the other gospels. And of course, when they wanted to certify that a crucifixion victim or this execution, the person was actually dead. You remember they would come and literally break the legs of the person who was there on the cross. That was their typical act in order to ensure the death of the person. It was a horrible, shameful, painful, sometimes lengthy way to die. And they were going to break the legs of Jesus. That was their thought. But they saw that he was already dead, and when they saw that he was already dead, they decided to do something else, unusual. Unusual in that they needed to certify the death, but if they didn't break the legs, they had to give some sort of proof that he truly had died. And so remember, the soldier took the spear and put it into Jesus' side, and blood and water poured out. And that is, as one writer called it a death certificate. He had truly died. Unwittingly, that act had been a part of fulfilling Scripture, not only in the death of Christ, because he did have to die. That was the certification of it. The prophets foretold his death, but they also foretold that not a bone of him would be broken. And so their failure to break a leg in Jesus' body was a fulfillment of Scripture itself. Jesus did indeed die. There was a death certificate, so to speak. Isaiah had said, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Isaiah had prophesied of his death. Daniel said that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. He had to die. And why did he have to die? Isaiah says hundreds of years before, it was for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Jesus was dying as a substitute in the place of sinners. Jesus not only died, but he was buried, and the burial is also attested to in the Gospels. We know Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, came. And if you look at verse 50 in Luke chapter 23, it says, A man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. 
a man from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. And you might say, well, that was just Joseph. Joseph was the only witness after that event. Maybe he was still alive, but look at verse 54 and following. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So Joseph is not there alone. The women came, and according to Luke, they observed that what had taken place there. We also learn from John's gospel that Nicodemus was also there. Nicodemus, who was a secret disciple until that point, came and brought a mixture of spices, aloes, to pour upon the body. That linen that was brought to to wrap the body of Jesus along with the spices, a tomb that had been cut into the rock. There are circumstances here that we might just skip over and not give much significance to, but the reality is that Jesus' burial is significant in the story of the gospel. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried. That burial was also an indication that he had died, that those who took down his body were certain that there was no life in his body. Joseph, Nicodemus, the women all were there, but there's something else. And what was it? It was the fulfillment again of Scripture. Again, it's Isaiah who testifies that he was with the rich in his death. Isaiah 53, verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. How do you explain that? Well, one writer said it this way, the servant was given an honorable burial after his dishonorable death because of his perfect innocence. Why was Jesus buried by Nicodemus and Joseph when the other two were probably taken to a common grave, buried without much knowledge of who they were, unless their family had followed them like many of Jesus' friends and followers had followed him that day? But Jesus would have been buried with them had not Joseph requested the body and then gone laid him in this newly cut grave. That writer goes on to say, inasmuch as he had not acted like his criminal enemies, he would not receive disgraceful burial with them, but honorable burial with the rich. And so his death is a fulfillment of Scripture. His burial is a fulfillment of Scripture. The way in which he was buried is a fulfillment of Scripture. And we come to, of course, the resurrection story in Luke chapter 24, and we see some surprises, some things that we know if we've read through the Gospels, we understand 
the story of the resurrection, we know, but I want to just encourage you to look at it from that the standpoint of the women who were going to the tomb on that day. All they had seen was Jesus crucified, buried in this tomb, and they had to rest. They could not bring the spices the same day. They had to go prepare them and then eventually bring them. And as they come on the first day of the week, chapter 24, verse 1, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bring the spices which they had prepared. So here's this group of women, loving and devoted followers of Jesus. They had followed him from his ministry, through his ministry. They had come from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. They were there for the feast. They were there for these events, and they're expressing their love and devotion for Christ even after he died, but really, obviously, in unbelief. What's the surprise? The surprise is as they get to the tomb, verse 2, they find the stone rolled away. And another surprise, as they enter, verse 3, when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. That stone was likely not small. It is described in one of the other Gospels with the word mega, the Greek word mega, which means it was large, and they asked the question, who will roll away for us? We're multiple women, but they did not consider themselves to be able to roll away the stone. So that's a sizable stone, and it's rolled away. And in addition to that, as they enter into that tomb, there is no body. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, how would you interpret that evidence if you're one of them? Again, remember the context. They actually have spices to pour over that linen. It's a part of the burial practices of the Jews. They didn't embalm like the Egyptians. They'd wrap the body in linen and pour spices over. There was a natural process of decay, but that's what they're expecting, that the body of Jesus is going to decay. The, the spices and the bringing of spices has no faith in what Jesus had said before about his resurrection. They're just there because they're sorrowing, they're devoted, they loved him, they followed him. And there really is, although it is dawn, there still seems to be darkness in their hearts. But another surprise, verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, while they were confused by the circumstances. They're at a loss, is the idea of that word. They don't know what to say. And that word behold introduces something new, something to look at, something that is a change, different. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. It seems to be a sudden appearance. Not that the angels walked there. Of course, they came from heaven, and suddenly they're standing there next to them, it says in dazzling clothing, gleaming, shining garments, that would cause anybody to fear. And for them, notice the fear, their terror in verse 5. It says, as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them. 
So yes, there's the surprise of their presence, but now they're going to give a message. And that message is a message of rebuke. A question of rebuke that comes to them. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Implicit in that rebuke is a proposition. There's a living one. This one that you're coming to pour spices over his body, that person is alive. Why are you seeking the living one among the dead? There were other graves around, but this grave was empty. And the reason the grave was empty was because the person had risen. And after that rebuke, there's a call to remembrance. Remember, verse 6 says. But there's also that announcement. He is not here, but he has risen. So the first testimony to these women is coming from two angels from heaven who are declaring that he is not here at the grave. Why? Because he'd actually risen from the dead. But this call to remembrance at the end of verse 6, in the middle of verse 6, is a rebuke as well, because they actually knew that he was going to rise from the dead. This is something that was lodged in their memory, but had not yet come out on this day. With all the gloom and darkness following the crucifixion and all the events and Certainly the Sabbath, even as they had time to reflect, they still did not remember those words of Jesus that the angels now collect for them. And as they collect them and give them to these women, the women realize they already have them. Remember, the angel says, verse 6, how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Everything that they had just experienced in the last few days is now being outlined by the angels, but outlined in such a way, not that it's new information, outlined in terms of You heard this before. This is what he said would happen. He said that he was going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He said that he was going to be crucified. He said that he was going to rise again. And you ever have one of those, oh, right, moments. Oh, yeah. Because those words recalled for these women in their memories his words. What happened was a fulfillment of Jesus' own prophecy. And you can read through the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 21, chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, Matthew 26 as well, where Jesus is repeating. He's not just only said this one time. It was multiple times that he said this was going to take place. Now, I I think it's interesting as we read through this account how this account reads in light of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus' purpose is for this knowledge of his resurrection to be known, proclaimed. Eventually, this became the truth that the early church proclaimed. But how is it revealed first to these women? 
And how is it revealed to the disciples? Even the disciples that we're going to read about later in this chapter, how does God reveal the truth of the resurrection? See, this passage could read another way, couldn't it? If Jesus had done things differently, Jesus just suddenly appears. He's sitting in the tomb. He, they come and he's there and he's alive. I mean, it could read very differently if God had a different plan. But what God's plan was, was that they would be confronted with the word of God, which they had heard and actually already knew, so that they would be challenged for their unbelief, but also kindled in their faith to believe what God had said apart from any evidence. You see what I'm saying? In other words, rather than Jesus suddenly appearing here to their sight, he appeals to their faith by reminding them of words. Yes, angelic testimony. Yes, an empty tomb. There's evidence, but There's a way to interpret that in evidence, and the way to interpret it is in the light of what God had said, what Christ himself had said. And so these women remember Jesus' words. They remember what he said, and while they knew it already, that must have been something they marveled at. Not a surprise like the other things they found but something they marveled at. Oh, yeah, that is what he said. Now look at verse 9. These witnesses to the angelic testimony, it says, return, verse 9, from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And as... You can expect, this is certainly good news. It's news to rejoice in. You could expect that this would be met with welcome, but it's actually not met with welcome. It's met with skepticism. It's met with doubt. It's met with unbelief. And isn't it true that those who hear about the resurrection still have those responses to this day? Unbelief, doubt, skepticism, and they've never even read what the scriptures have to say. They have only heard it from someone. They've never investigated for themselves. But here's the report, verse 9. It says they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So the eleven, obviously Judas has taken his own life, so Judas is not present, but other disciples are there. And these women, Luke now names so that we would understand, so that the readers of his gospel would understand that these aren't women that are unfamiliar to the disciples. One of them is the mother of one of the disciples. Verse 10, now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, James the less. James was one of the disciples. 
Mary Magdalene, if you remember, was a follower of Christ out of whom had been cast seven demons. She'd followed him since then. She was one who frequently followed Jesus, listened to his teaching. Joanna is another godly woman who believed in Jesus and supported Jesus out of her means so that as Jesus went and preached and did what he did, there was supply of whether food or money or whatever for Jesus and his disciples to do what they needed to do. And it's not just these three, but these three alone would be credible witnesses. Notice it says at the end of verse 10, also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. And so the testimony comes to them. There were angels at the tomb. The tomb was empty. The stone had been rolled away. This is what the angels said. Remember what Jesus said. They're telling the disciples, the apostles, all these things, but look at their response. And let's keep in mind, these are the apostles themselves. These are the disciples of Jesus who did not believe in the resurrection. And verse 11 tells us these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. So there's a couple responses here that are worthy of our meditation. They appeared, these words appeared as nonsense. Different translations use different words, idle tales, silly talk, nonsense. One writer A.T. Robertson, Greek scholar, wrote a book called Word Pictures of the New Testament, and he said that medical writers use this word for the wild talk of those who are in hysteria or delirium, that the disciples are thinking of the testimony of these women in those terms. Notice, it says, in addition to that, they would not believe them. Because of how they regarded them, there was a willful resistance. This is the word apostua, which is faith would be pastua. This is the unbelief. There's a willful resistance to, to hold fast these things that the women are saying. Now, there could be reasons why they were not accepting the testimony of women based on the context of this time in history for the Jews, there has been the suggestion that because they were women, their testimony would not be accepted in a court of law. One translator of the works of Josephus, as Josephus talks about this, uh, this matter, there's just there's no indication that in in history that this was the case. There's just the suggestion that that may have been why the disciples didn't accept the testimony of the women. Uh, it, it, It appears from at least the translator of Josephus' works, he says that it's it's probable that that's the way things were done in Israel and Jerusalem during that time, that the leaders would not accept the testimony of a, of a woman, which is ridiculous. There's no reason not to believe them when they are eyewitnesses. Jesus regarded women. In fact, through Luke's gospel, there's an elevation of women in a way that 
shows their worth and dignity. Whatever the reason is, these disciples would not believe the women, except for one. So that skepticism that really is marking the group, there's just one exception. We know from the other Gospels there's more, but at least Peter here, as Luke records it, responds not with skepticism entirely, not with doubt entirely, but actual investigation. He's going to go look and see what is taking place. Verse 12 says, But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. So I say on the part of the disciples as a whole, there was skepticism, doubt, willful unbelief, but on the part of Peter, there was an investigation. And I do believe that Luke, in recording this, and certainly the way he wrote his gospel is actually encouraging investigation. It's the glory of kings to search out a matter, to actually find the truth, to ascertain whether or not this report is true. When a king does that in his nation, as he rules, that certainly is a way to establish facts and not based on political opinion or whatever, but actually to to know what is taking place so that he can govern accordingly. Peter's investigating. He wants to know has if, if what they're saying is true. I'm going to go see for myself. And he didn't find Jesus, according to verse 12, but he did find consistency between their report and what he saw. He didn't see the angels. I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever investigated the report of the resurrection based upon eyewitness evidence? recorded for you in the Gospels? That's what the Gospel writers claim. I once heard a testimony of a governor, a former governor of South Carolina named David Beasley. He began listening to the Bible on tape. He started asking questions of the Bible. He was a microbiology major originally, but then he got a law degree from the University of South Carolina. And as he got these tapes of the Bible, started listening to the Bible, he began investigating the reliability of the Bible. Is the Bible reliable? And he came across an author named Simon Greenleaf, who wrote a three-volume work on the rules of evidence. Greenleaf was a professor of law at Harvard in the 1850s who eventually came through his own study of the Gospels, came to faith in Christ. Beasley's investigation led him to the point where he also came to Christ. But initially, he didn't just receive it. And as an attorney, he wanted to find out, is this true? 
Greenleaf, as he wrote on the Gospels, said this, all that Christianity asks of men on this subject is that they would be consistent with themselves, that they would treat its evidences as they treat the evidence of other things, and that they would try and judge its actors and witnesses as they deal with their fellow men when testifying to human affairs and actions in human tribunals. Let the witnesses be compared with themselves, with each other, and with the surrounding facts and circumstances, and let their testimony be sifted if as, it, as if it were given in a court of justice on the side of the adverse party, the witness is being subjected to a ri- rigorous cross-examination. The result, it is confidently believed, will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. Either the men of Galilee were men of superlative wisdom and extensive knowledge and experience and of deeper skill in the arts of deception than any and all others before or after them, or they have truly stated the astonishing things which they saw and heard. Put it to the test. Read the Bible. I'm telling you it is true, but... This is Falls Berean Baptist Church, or Bible Church, rather. We believe in believers' baptism, but we, as we hold to the teaching of Scripture and we magnify that idea of being a Berean, what did those Berean Jews do? They came and as they listened to the apostle, they, they compared what was being said with the Scriptures. And they didn't, they didn't just take at face value what was being said, they They listened, and they took the scriptures, and they compared, and because of that comparison between what was said and what the scriptures said, the scripture says, therefore, many of them believed. Many of them believed. They trusted in the truthfulness of the message, not because just the messenger, but because they compared with the word of God. So I just ask you to investigate Peter investigated. Now, it doesn't stop there. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I want to see Jesus. Right? I want to I hear about his resurrection. But on this day, I actually want to see him. And it would have been interesting to follow Jesus wherever he was and wherever he went and whoever he interacted with that day. You have to scour the Gospels at the end to see. And, of course, those who try to bring an account a complimentary account, try to recount the events of this day. And it gets complicated. It gets difficult. But at least we know, look at verse 13, that there was an interaction between two of those disciples. Verse 13, it says, behold, two of them, and eventually Jesus. And so we have seen, as we've looked through this passage, skepticism of those disciples, the surprises at the tomb, the significance of the death and the burial. But let's look at the stranger now on the road to Emmaus. Verse 13, it says, Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And so, as we look at 
the circumstances of these two disciples. I do want you to notice in verse 13, it says two of them. So it's two of the ones who had heard the words of the women. We know that from their story later on, but it's two of that same group. They'd, they'd heard the message. These are among those who have skepticism. They're not Peter. They had investigated. And so we've had these three travelers. Two of them are disciples who'd been in the room when the women came, skeptical, but now talking about it. Because verse 14 says, they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. What things? Well, they're the things from the days before, but especially the events of that day. The things that they had just heard. And in the context of that discussion, isn't it wonderful just to see Jesus taking a walk on Resurrection Day to talk to some of his disciples? But the great, one of the greatest parts of the story is they don't know it, but we do. So we get to see some insight into our Lord's discussion with these two disciples when they don't know who he is. He's this stranger. It is really in God's providence and power that they are not recognizing him. There's not really any reason other than that for them not to recognize him. They'd been in his presence. They'd heard his teaching. They were his disciples. They knew what his face looked like. They heard his voice. They would have recognized Jesus, except that, verse 16, it says their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. This is in God's plan and in God's power to withhold something from their eyes so that they would first see something with the eye of faith. And isn't that consistent with what just happened with the women? And isn't that consistent with even the message that it came to the disciples, that they would be challenged in their unbelief by the word of God? But here it's not the written word, it's the living word. It's the living one. And as the living one is with them, there are three questions that sort of fall out here in their first interchange. Verse 17, and he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? What's this debate about, you might say? There was a back and forth. There was question, answer, point, counterpoint. They're going back and forth about whatever had happened. And as they do that, as they receive that question, Notice their immediate response. And it is resurrection day, but they don't yet believe. The sun is shining, but they don't see the Son of God. There's still darkness in their hearts, even though they're traveling with the Son of Righteousness. It says they stood still. They literally came to a stop. They paused. And they looked downcast. They looked sad. And that's how it would stay, wouldn't it? If the resurrection wasn't true. 
we wouldn't be here today if the resurrection wasn't true. Their sadness, because of the events of the last days, Jesus is going to draw out from them and from their hearts. But we have an ironic question, the second question here that Cleopas asks. We learn one of the disciples of Jesus, not one of the twelve, but another disciple who followed Jesus. His name is Cleopas, and he, he speaks to Jesus and asks this amazing question in light of the circumstances. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Jesus was the center of attention, and as the Son of God, but also by personal experience, of course he knew exactly what had taken place. He knew better than they did. That question stands. Verse 19, a third question. Here's where he draws out their heart. It says, he said to them, what things? Now, Jesus knows what they've been talking about. Jesus knows what they've been debating. He knows what the issue is, but he's going to draw out by means of a question. Jesus didn't ask questions, right, for information's sake. He's not learning anything, not as the Son of God who knew the hearts of men, who is, according to Acts chapter 1, the heart knower. But he draws out their heart and their heart is despondent because they are hopeless. They're also astonished at the same time, but they're hopeless. Notice how they phrase, how this disciple phrases what had happened. He said the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we, and here's the key phrase, were hoping that it was he who is going to redeem Israel. We were hoping that. That's something that we had our expectation on, and our expectations were dashed because of the events of the last few days. That's why they're so sad. That's why they're so downhearted. They had great hopes, and those great hopes were thrown to the ground and crushed when Jesus was crucified. But verse 21, middle of the verse, it says, Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also, some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And so it's apparent they were aware of Peter's investigation. John, according to the other Gospels, had gone with. So he may be, they may be referring to Peter and John when they said some of those who were with us. But at the end of the verse, him they did not see. 
And that's really where it's at. There's no recall of Jesus' words. There's just circumstances that point to something happened, but as they're interpreting it, they're not thinking in terms of the resurrection. And how does Jesus respond to this? There's a scene in the book of Judges where Gideon is talking to the angel of the Lord. And Gideon is doubtful about what he's supposed to do, even though this angel of the Lord, who I believe is the pre-incarnate Christ, came to him and is telling him that he's to go and fulfill his purpose in fighting against the Midianites. And in the scene... They're talking, they're in a threshing floor, and the scripture says that the angel of the Lord suddenly turned, and in my way of understanding that passage, he turned toward Gideon and he said, go in this your strength. It's one of those moments of revelation where it's almost like he turns and says, I'm behind you, and the recognition of who Gideon is talking to would have given him the knowledge that God was with him. Literally, God was with him, present with him. Gideon realizes that he's with someone who's no mere angel. And as the story unfolds, Gideon realizes that he's seen God. And that's one of those revelation moments where God, in his plan, purposed to just unveil himself so that his servant would would trust in the reality of his power and presence and his servant would do what he commanded him to do. I say all that, and Jesus didn't do that here. I mean, we, we, we might imagine a scene where maybe he's got a hood on and he suddenly takes off his hood and then he just kind of looks at them and and looks at them like you should recognize. Jesus doesn't do that. Same face, same voice, same person, but their eyes are still prevented. And instead of suddenly unveiling who he is to them by opening their mind to understand, what does he turn to? He turns to the word of God. He points to the truthfulness of God's word and the necessity for the Messiah to go through what he has just gone through. And so what does it say? Was it not necessary, verse 26, excuse me, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He rebukes them for their foolishness. What was their foolishness? They had failed to believe. What had they failed to believe? They'd failed to believe what the prophets themselves said about the Messiah. And so as he begins to explain, notice the content of his explanation was, verse 26 the necessity of the Christ to suffer and then enter his glory and then 
What passages did he turn to, at least by his discussion? It was Moses. It was the prophets. Moses, which foretold the sufferings of Christ. How did he do that? Well, we're not told in this passage how exactly Jesus did that. We're not told exactly what passages he went to, other than we do know that he went to Moses. He went to the first five books of the Bible, and he showed that the Messiah was to suffer. And I can't think of anything more prominent in the first five books than the reality of sacrifice. The sacrificial lamb. The lamb that had to be slain and the blood that had to be shed and that blood that then had to be applied for atonement to be made. That implies suffering, suffering of an innocent animal, which was throughout the books of Moses, really throughout the scriptures, points to as a picture, as John said, the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sins of the world. Suffering, yes. Look at all the sacrifices. The very reality of the sacrificial system, the each individual sacrifice, it was part of the picture for that animal to suffer for the sake of a sinner as a picture. And you could go back to the early chapters in Genesis and see that because Abel offered a sacrifice of his sheep. That was the sacrifice that God was pleased with. But Jesus doesn't stay with Moses alone. He also, it says, it says, and with all the prophets, what a day that must have been. What a journey that must have been for Jesus to delineate and describe the different passages that applied to the suffering of the Messiah and then the glory of his kingdom that would follow. We certainly could expect him to open up passages like Psalm 16 or Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or Zechariah chapter 12 or Daniel chapter 9. All those passages speaking of the suffering of Christ, but those same prophets speaking of the kingdom of Christ. The same psalms that testify to the piercing of the hands and feet of the Messiah, those same psalms prophesy of a glorious kingdom. Zechariah prophesied of one who would be pierced, but he also prophesied of a day when the Lord would be king over all of the earth. Daniel prophesied of the cutting off of the Messiah, but he also prophesied of the Son of Man to whom all kindreds, tribes, tongues would worship and serve. And so there was a picture of the suffering of Christ and also his kingdom in the same prophets, the same Psalms, Moses as well. And what Jesus did on this day, and this verse is recorded for us, what he did on that day was to explain the scriptures. This is an invitation to us to read the the, the majority of our Bible, if I could put it that way. And I'm looking at Matthew through Revelation, and it's this much. But I'm looking at Genesis through Malachi, and it's this much. And all of it's Christ. And it points to what he would do, both in terms of his suffering 
It points to the reality of his royalty and kingdom and his identity as the son of God. Doubters. One writer spoke of doubters who they doubted the truthfulness of the resurrection. He said, may you also begin to seek and to inquire and thoroughly scrutinize the matter, which though scarce looked even at superficially, you now dared to deny. The majority of your party desist too quickly from the search after truth and remain like indolent sailors fast aground in the sandbank of unbelief. You're unbelieving? I find this to be true sometimes. You ask someone if they've ever read the Bible. They're not believing. Have you ever read the Bible? No, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't read the Bible, but I don't believe it. You, you're saying you don't believe what you've never read. That same author said, see here the guide who will conduct you safely to the end of your journey. Because you do not know the scriptures, therefore you do not believe. If you could only determine to plunge heart and soul into them, how soon would your heart burn within you? Like as these two disciples begin to do, and they testified later, what is happening in their heart is faith is being kindled. Jesus is the one explaining. They don't even know that it's him, but because the word of God is being read and explained, they're starting to realize this is exactly what God said would happen. Read the Bible. Get to know the Bible. Eyewitness testimony. I think sometimes as believers, we assume the knowledge of the Bible too much with people that we're trying to win Christ. Not only do we need to read the Bible ourselves, we need to tell them what the Bible says. But if they don't read it themselves, someone has to tell them. Now, I could say this. I do know that there are some who have, they've come to the point where they're questioning. They know that they've never read the Bible. They're not yet believing, but they do want to read it for themselves. I admire that. I want to encourage you, if that's one of you, to read your Bible, to keep on reading it, to ask for explanation if you need it. The Lord can use that in your life to open your eyes to help you to see. I still remember the testimony of a sister in Christ now who she had never read the Bible. And as a woman who grew up in a Jewish home, a Jew herself, she just had an antagonism by virtue of her family against Jesus Christ. Jesus was a swear word in her family. But a friend asked her to read the Bible with her. And she talked about, she said, when I, when I, when I got to the place where I saw what the Jews did in the wilderness, she, she said, I was mad. She's starting to see for the first time things that they're there all along. She just never read. And eventually she came to Christ to the answer of the prayers of her husband who was a Christian, and the answer of many other people praying for her. And I just want to encourage you, if that's you, you haven't read the Bible, you don't really understand it, I want to encourage you to keep on reading and keep on seeking for understanding. Ask God. You might say, I don't believe in God yet. Ask Him anyway. 
Start to ask him and ask him to show you the truth. He is real and he will as you read his word. So again, with the end of verse 27 and even the next couple of verses, Jesus is there, but he's still hidden from them. What has he pointed them to? The word of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So this is in terms of the way that he revealed the resurrection. And even in this conversation, what is Jesus doing? He's kindling faith by the word of God. Verse 28, and they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, that's a word for strongly urging him. So there's something in their response here. They they have listened to him, and they now really are interested in this stranger and what he has to say. They urged him, saying, stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And isn't it a wonderful thing that he finally did reveal himself to them so that they, along with the others, could be witnesses of the resurrected Lord? Verse 30 says, when he had reclined at the table with them, certainly he had faced them by this point. You can imagine on the road, they're just walking together and he's talking. They may not be looking at directly at him. Plus, they're sad, which might mean that even in their countenance, they're downcast and they're just listening to this stranger talk. But as they're listening, maybe not looking at his face, but then pondering. But by now, they've come into a house. They've come into a place where they're sitting at a table. They had seen his face. They'd heard his voice. But it's in these moments... Verse 30, it says, when he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. Apparently in resurrection life, there's still going to be thanksgiving for what God provides. Even in the part of Jesus. Not just as an example, but because Jesus was thankful for this resurrection meal. It says, in breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. What a moment! Suddenly, this one who has explained the scriptures to them, they realize it's him, and he's gone. Enough, certainly, to bring attention to their lack of faith, but now to certify the truthfulness of Scripture, he provides something for their eyes to see. And he's been with them all along. Their eyes are open. You ever had a moment like that where suddenly you're just like, ah! My wife invited my best man from our wedding, came to the front door on my birthday, and he's got glasses on and a hat on and a mask on. And he's got something in his hand. And she said, there's somebody at the door. So I come to the door and I'm like, who is this delivering a note to me? So as he's got this note in his hand, I'm kind of like, okay. And then he takes off his glasses and I'm like, I know those eyes. And I reached out and gave him a big hug. Just 
that kind of a moment with a personal friend is one thing. This is the Lord of heaven. This is their savior. They had just seen him crucified. And he's alive. And then he vanishes, which is something that as Jesus does that, he demonstrates that he is certainly the son of God. He has the power to do things that we don't have the power to do. But notice their ensuing discussion. It says they got up that very hour and returned to, excuse me, go back to verse 32. Then they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? That's the kindling of their faith. They got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and all those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And for those disciples, they got to see him again. As suddenly he appears and he says, peace to you. And he reveals himself to all the apostles at that point. Brothers and sisters, anyone else who is gathered here today, I say that because those who have come to God by faith have a father, a heavenly father, and they're a part of a spiritual family. If you are not a part of that family, the family of God, the scriptures are very clear that there's another family. Jesus, in his teaching and in his debates with the Jews, clearly laid it out. There are the children of God, and they're the children of the devil. They may not be the children of the devil in the sense that they knowingly and willingly and purposefully serve the devil, but he opposes God and he blinds the minds of those who do not believe. And there very certainly will be, for those who are not a part of the family of God, a coming day of judgment. I'm not telling you anything the Bible doesn't say. You can read it and search it out yourself. But the invitation of Scripture, really the invitation of the gospel, is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You'll become a part of the family of God because your sins will be forgiven. And your hope will now be in heaven. You will have a heavenly father. You will have brothers and sisters in Christ. But I say to all of you, and it's for the encouragement of those who believe, but also to challenge those who do not believe, Jesus Christ has risen. He is alive. There is eyewitness testimony in this record that we have just read. Search it out for yourself. And let God be true, but every man a liar. Christianity rises or falls with the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If this is not true, the scriptures are false and a lie. And for those who do believe, the resurrection is not true. You're still in your sins. 
You're still under a curse. You're under the penalty of sin. If it's not true, Jesus Christ is a false prophet. He's actually a blasphemer. But if it is true, then his claims have been vindicated, vindicated, and your salvation is sure if you rest your hope in the way, the truth, and the life. And any person who comes to faith in him must confess him as Lord and believe that he has risen from the dead. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. You could be here today and have never confessed with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You've never believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. I want to invite you today. Indeed, the scripture gives it as a commandment, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to invite you to, you find your sins are forgiven, you find the gift of eternal life will be yours, and you'll have a hope both now and eternity and be a part of God's family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we bow, we are grateful for the gospel message. We're grateful that you have given us not only one record in the Gospel of Luke, but four separate ones that we might know the truth of the Gospel in all of its fullness. And Lord, I do pray that if there's anyone here today who does not know you as Lord and Savior, they've never confessed Jesus as Lord, they've never believed in their heart, I pray that today they would turn to you and trust in your words. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has risen, that they might have forgiveness of sins and true salvation. And for us who believe, Lord, we pray that we might rejoice today in the resurrection, that Jesus is alive and that he's coming again. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.